0: I don't know how many of you have been doing the Bible readings that uh, we started this past week, so if you have, you will recognize the scripture that I'm going to be reading this morning. It's Genesis 11, to 9. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Robin and the word that you have given to him to, uh, yeah, give to us this morning. And we pray that we would have ears to hear what you want to say to us. Lord, may we be people that desire for your kingdom to be built here and not things that. Build each one of us up individually. Lord, we pray for your this community here that we would grow stronger in you and use Robin. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you. We sleek it beastie. Ah, uh, what a panic synabri. A uh, witness start away, say hasty with and brattle. I would be lathe to run and chase you with murder and paddle. That's the opening stanza of Robert Byrne's poem Ta To a mouse on turning up her nest with the plough. It's in Lalands, which is the dialect of English from central Scotland. That yes, that was English. <laughs> It's actually technically it should be my native tongue, but I really don't speak it anymore. Marilyn, Marilyn will 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 testify that when we go to Scotland, gradually things start seeping into my language, which weren't there before. But uh, generally speaking, I can't you know I I can't speak that. But anyway, you you may not know the poem, but you might know one of its more famous lines, which is. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glide, or go often awry in standard English. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning how an ambitious plan by a group of people to make a city and a name for themselves ends up having the exact opposite outcome. But before we do that, let's talk a bit about. K. Context, as Marilyn said this week, we've been reading passages together from Genesis one through eleven. What the Bible has to say about where we come from. Now, every culture has its own cosmology, that is, its own theories or stories about how the universe came into being and what our places in it. That's true today, and it was true in. For ancient Israel as well, but Israel stood out from around from all her neighbors around in a number of ways. And Genesis one through eleven is where we find those differences spelled out. The surrounding cultures were all polytheistic; they believed in many gods. Israel was monotheistic; there is only one God. The Bible starts off in the beginning, God, not in the beginning the gods. So Israel was monotheistic, their neighbors were all polytheistic. The surrounding culture believed that two of the gods got into a fight, and the good god killed the bad god and chopped up their body to make the world. It's true. Um, so they believed that the earth was, and everything physical was tainted, was evil in some way. The Bible says no. No. The earth exists because the one good God chose to make it, and he made it good. The surrounding culture believed that human beings were all slaves of the gods, that we exist only to serve the gods' whims. The Bible says, no, human beings have great dignity because we're made in the image of God himself. And far from being slaves, he put us here to rule over and care for his creation, as his representatives. The surrounding cultures had their own flood stories in which the human beings down on earth were making so much noise that the gods couldn't get any sleep. Sounds fun. It's true. Uh, so they sent the flood so they could get some peace and quiet. The Bible says no. The flood was an example of how seriously The God of creation takes wickedness and sin. Now, all of these arguments are implied in what we've read this week. Nowhere up to this point has God explicitly said, this is what I'm doing, I'm giving you an alternate story, the true story about the universe and your place in it. The Bible didn't really have to do that because the original readers would have been aware, at least vaguely, of what their neighbors believed. But now at the end of this section of scripture, it gets explicit in identifying and essentially ridiculing the source of all those ideas. That's Babylon. So a couple of weeks ago, I encouraged you to approach, try and approach any passage of scripture with an open mind, no matter how many times you've read it or heard it. So I took my own advice and here's a few things that I noticed about this passage. First of all, it's really short. It's only nine verses. The two great stories that everybody knows from the early chapters of Genesis, even if you know nothing else about the Bible, there's two great stories that everybody knows from the early chapters of Genesis. That's Noah's Flood and the Tower of Babel. Noah's Flood is four chapters. It took two days of readings. If you're you reading along with us, it was you know half of it the, one day and half of it the next day. So Noah's flood is four chapters. The Torah of Babel is nine verses. Second, sticking with those two stories, as any of you who were here for the series on covenant might remember, the, when we preached on the flood, despite all the mass deaths involved, the story of the flood is actually a story of grace. Because the key verse is Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah. So the flood is a story of 2nd Genesis. Like the flood, the Tower of Babel also has a pivot point in the middle of the story, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But it pivots to judgment. Third thing is, it's really hard to ignore where the story comes. Context is important. So it's the last narrative passage before the call of Abraham in chapter 12. So chapter 11 sets up the problem to which the call of Abram is the beginning of the solution. So on a very simple level, basic level, these nine verses lay out a very straightforward story. A bunch of people migrate east in the hopes of making a name for themselves. As I was working on this, it was really hard not to think of the slogan from 19th century America. Go west, young man, go west and grow up with the country. Some of you recognize that. Except these people are going east. Okay. So they settle on a plain in what came to be known as Mesopotamia, and they set about building a city. God's not pleased, confuses their work, and they end up scattered. However, when you start reading the commentaries on this passage, you find that many of the writers who, you know, I mean, they're biblical scholars, and sometimes it's a bit dry, okay? They wax almost lyrical about what a wonderful, beautiful example this is of Hebrew storytelling. Uh, There's parallels and reversals and rhyming and repetitions of words and parts of words. Sadly, a lot of that is lost in translation. And um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but, you know, I was impressed about the amount of work that's gone into this crafting, this jewel of a story. Now, once upon a time, I was really into theatre. Uh, not the actual acting stuff, the behind-the-scenes stuff, lighting, sound, props, that kind of stuff. Uh, somewhere buried in the basement of our house in Canada, there are boxes of plays, because I would just buy plays and read plays for fun. Um, you know, the classics like Shakespeare, but you know also Tom Stoppard, Beckett, that kind of stuff. I volunteered at an art center in Edinburgh um, on weekends, and I worked the fest- Edinburgh Festival fridge, Fringe a couple of sun, uh, summers doing sound. <laughs> which was really nice, doing sound and light, because all the guys who work on sound and light kind of get to know each other, and then you they get you get invited into the sound room for other people's productions, so you get to see other people's productions for free. which was kind of cool. Anyway, um, one of the things I picked up in the process of working on theatre is you can actually set up a character as good or bad simply by how they enter the stage. Heroes traditionally make their first entrance from stage right and villains from stage left. That goes all the way back to medieval period where stage left represented hell and stage right represented heaven. Some scholars say that having someone enter from stage left, which is on the right hand side of the audience is unconsciously disturbing because we, we our eyes scan from left to right with reading, and then they come in and against that flow. Why am I telling you this? Because in verse 2, the text tell us, tells us that the people were migrating east, and that's already a clue that this story is not going to turn out well. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden at the end of chapter 3, they go to the east. And we know that because it says the Lord set up an angel on the east side of the garden to stop Adam and Eve from returning. Likewise, chapter 4, verse 16, when Cain is banished by the Lord, he too went east out of the Lord's presence. And we haven't gotten there yet, but in chapter 13, um, when Lot and Abraham decide on how to split up the land, Lot will also head east into the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. One commenter puts it, in the Genesis narratives, when man goes east, he leaves the land of blessing, Eden and the promised land, and goes to a land where the greatest of his hopes will turn to ruin, Babylon and Sodom. So these people are migrating from west to east, which means they're migrating from the coastal area of what is now Israel, Lebanon, and Syria into what the passage calls the plains of Shinar. That's actually a theological problem for them. Because generally speaking, people in the ancient world believed that the gods lived on top of mountains. Or at least that you could get closer to them by going up a mountain or a hill. And that's actually the origin of all the high places that you read about in the Old Testament. It's this idea that you go up higher and you're closer to God. That's also why there's no fewer than eight Mount Olympuses in the ancient Greek world. One of them is right across the bay here, Taktali, the mountain behind Khmer. It is Lycean Mount Olympus because if you're going to have gods, you have to have a, have a mountain for them to live on, right? That's the way it works. So, what do you do when you migrate to a place when you migrate from a place that has mountains where your gods live to a place that's as flat as a pancake and there's not a mountain in sight? Obviously, you build one, and that's what the, the ziggurats of ancient Mesopotamia were. Artificial mountains with a temple on top. And Babylon was famous for its ziggurat, which, quote, had its roots in the underworld and its top in the heavens. In fact, the name Babylon, Babel, means Babel, gate of God. So that's what's going on in verses three and four of this story. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There's other things going on here too. That little little editorial note, they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. It's also a bit of a dig at how puny the city would be, at least in the eyes of Israelites who use stone quarried from the mountains to build their their cities. Now, having said that, In two thousand and three, we visited Bam in eastern Iran before the big. Sorry, in two thousand and one, before the earthquake in two thousand and three. At that point, it was the largest existing mud brick city in the world, and it was pretty impressive. But there's there's this whole thing about making a name for themselves, right? Um, and there's a lovely play of words here because the 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 Hebrew word for name is Shem. That's the word for. for, uh, that sounds familiar, it's also the name of one of the forefathers of Abraham, right? Because this this passage actually comes right in the middle of the genealogy of Shem. So it's in the middle of the genealogy of Shem. It's about making a Shem for yourself. And God's promise to Abram a few verses later in chapter 12 is that he, God, will make Abram's name, his Shem, great. So once again, the Bible is saying no. It says, no, you won't make a great name for yourself. God is the one who makes people great. So we make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It talks about identity. See, for most of human history, religion has been the primary way in which societies have been held together. We're this religion, not that one. You can hear that in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. You worship on this mountain, we do it this way, you do it that way. Um, Jeroboam understood that when he took the 10 tribes and set up the northern kingdom of Israel. He realized that he also had to set up his own religious structure, or everybody would be going off to Jerusalem, and eventually return their loyalty back to the Davidic kings in Jerusalem. So you have a group of people who migrate from the mountains to the plain, and in order to keep them in order to have a viable religion and give them a sense of identity and hold them together, they set about building an artificial mountain so they'll have a focal point for their worship. That brings us to verse five, which is the turning point of the story. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. Now you may be tired of hearing me say this. I'm going to say it again. Very often in the Bible, the middle of the story is where we find the main point. It's called a chiasm, and it's here again. Can we have a slide up? This story is symmetrical. It says at the beginning and the end. It says the whole earth has one la- language. Verse two and verse eight. It talks about from there. Verse three and verse seven. It's got e- each other and each other's language. Um, Verse 3, it says, let us make bricks. Verse 7, it says, come, let us mix up. It's it's almost the same word in in Hebrew, mix up and make bricks. Verse 4, let us build for ourselves. Talks about which man has built, mankind has built. Then it's got a city and a tower, a city and a tower. The one thing that is not symmetrical is in the center of the story. It's the point of the story. The Lord came down. That's what the writer wants us to focus on. So the story isn't actually primarily about languages. It's primarily about a visit from a divine building inspector. I think James and Renata could probably identify with this. I'm sure they've had a fair number of building inspectors checking out the Mosaic building. And that's what God is doing with the tower that these people are building. Thanks. You can switch off off the screen now. And this verse is just dripping with irony. In their minds, the people are building a tower that reaches to the heavens. Right? That's what they just said to build. We're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. The place where the gods live. That's That's what we're building. But when the true God, who inhabits the heavens, wants to see what it is that they're doing, he has to come down to see it. They're building this great tower that will reach up to where God is. This great tower that stretches up to the sky. And if you've ever been to Dubai and uh, stood at the bottom of the Burj Khalifa, then you've got a sense of maybe perhaps how these people saw their tower. It wasn't nearly as high as that, but that's kind of how they thought of their tower. A tower that would reach to the heavens and bring them closer to God. But from God's perspective, Their tower is so tiny that he can't even see it from heaven. He has to come down to take a look at it. And here's what I think the point of this story is. Nothing that we can do can ever enable us to reach God. Nothing that we can do can ever enable us to reach God. We can't build physical towers to reach him. But neither can we build towers of good works or towers of smart thinking or towers of personal righteousness to make our own way to God. No matter how great they may look to us or how great they may look to those around us, like the tower in the story from God's point of view, our greatest efforts are so puny they're almost invisible. We can't reach up to God. God has to come down to us. And that's what he does. He meets us where we are. In the next chapter, he calls Abram. And there's no suggestion in the text that Abram was seeking God. He was probably religious. Everybody was. But God reached out to him and called him. And the Bible is the story of God reaching out to people because we're unable to reach him by ourselves. And that, that's the whole story of the Bible. Is a story of God coming down. And that story enriches its fulfillment in the incarnation, in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of God coming down. I said this is a story of judgment, and it is. But it's also a story of grace. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they, began to do, they, be, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse our language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. It's a story of judgment because God puts an end to their well-laid plans to build a city and a tower and a name for themselves. But it's also a story of grace. The focus since the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis has been on two things. God's plan to bless humanity by providing them with what is good and humanity's failure to trust God and enjoy the good that God has provided. The main image of goodness in God's goodness in the Old Testament is the gift of the land. And God tells humanity in Genesis 1.28 be fruitful and, and increase in number and fill the earth. The word translated earth there and pretty much everywhere else in, in, in Genesis is eretz, which is most often translated land. And there's a whole debate among scholars about 50-50 about whether the best translation in Genesis 11 is earth or land. So the debate is over whether the story is universal or local. Both are possible translations. But certainly the land, the Eretz, is a huge theme in the Old Testament. Abram is promised the land, but never actually owns anything more than a field. In the Exodus the people are brought back to the land that God promised to Abram. When the people f- fall into idolatry and injustice the land spews them out and they go into exile. Following they go. My battery just died. Following the exile um, a humbled people Return to the land. I think it was uh, Dindy that said, to, that said to me that um, in Jewish thought, the land isn't just a place in the Old Testament, it's a character. It, it, the land is, is, is a character in the Old Testament. It's, it's at the core of God's blessing. So the good land is the place of God's blessing. But in Genesis 11, the people leave this land and they seek another. In the process, they lose the blessing of God's good intentions, good provisions. They end up living east of Eden. You see, God doesn't leave them there. He doesn't allow them to bring their plans to success. Instead, he actually moves to rescue them from their plans and eventually to return them to the land and the blessing that awaits them there. And that's what the call of Abraham is about. To follow his call in the next chapter, Abraham has to move west and south to the land of Canaan. The opposite direction that the people were moving in verse 2 of chapter 11. Sometimes it can feel like God is against us. We make our plans. Plans that we think will bring us blessing and success. And then God seems to step in and just mess everything up. And it's easy to get get angry at God at times like that. I'm sure the folks in Genesis Genesis 11 were not happy that their plans were thwarted. But it wasn't that God didn't want to bless humanity. His word to Abraham just a few verses later is, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's not that he doesn't want to bless humanity. It's that he knows best how we will find blessing. And that isn't by building our own towers, our own structures of goodness, our own structures of religion. It's by listening to him and letting him him lead us into the good land, the blessing that he has prepared for us. I haven't forgotten verse 9. It says, That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Remember what the um, Babylonians claimed their name the name of their city was? Is Babel, the gate of God. The Bible says a better name would be Balal, which is the Hebrew word for confusion. No, Hebrew loves Hebrew loves to do this, right? It makes puns on names all the time, which actually makes me very happy because I like puns. I mean, the appropriate response in English when someone puns is every groans, right? But um, there's puns all over the Old Testament. I think so. So God clearly likes puns. Anyway, <laughs> so so you're, you'll often see your um, a note in your Bible will say something like "Babel" sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. So at the end of the story, it's saying, you know, the the goal of the people in building a city and a tower and a name for themselves actually ends in confusion. It doesn't end in making some kind of gate to God, access to God. It ends in confusion. When we first arrived in Antalya, we took Turkish lessons at the Babel language school. Um, Sadly, the lessons didn't take very well, but that's something else. Um, And we often think this passage is about language. I mean, it starts and ends with language, right? But as we've seen, the main point of the passage is actually in the middle. And that point is, there is nothing that we can do to make our way to God. The greatest things that we build in our lives The best things we can do are so puny that God has to come down from heaven to get a closer look, so you can even so you can even see them. Obviously, of course, God is God, so he can see everything everywhere. It's the context of the narrative. The only way that we can encounter God is if He comes down to us. And He does that in Jesus. Now, in the course of that encounter, it is very possible that he will mess up all of our well-laid plans. But that's not because he's mean. It's because his way of bringing blessing to us is so much better than our own puny means of bringing blessing to ourselves. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you don't let us carry out all of our great plans because you know the end from the beginning and you know that some of the things that we have planned, some of the things that we desire, some of the things that we want to do are not the best things for us. Lord, help us to recognize when you thwart our plans. Help us to recognize, Lord, that you do that because you love us And you have something better for us. And Lord, help us to remember every day that there's nothing that we can do to work ourselves up to you. There's nothing we can do to climb up to your presence. The only way that we can know you is because you've revealed yourself to us in your Son. It's very easy for us, Lord, as believers, to get caught up in moralism and works and that kind of stuff. But Lord, help to, help us to remember again and again, it's only by your grace, only by you coming down that we can know you. And Lord, we do want to continue to pray. Pray for Ukraine as we have already today. Lord, thank you for the way that you're speaking to your church around the world about praying for the situation in Ukraine for Ukraine and for Russia lord we pray for a just peace there lord we we think of other countries that are in in conflict we think about peru and brazil both of which are in are experiencing political upheaval lord we think about afghanistan and the the problems there, Lord Jesus, uh, as a, as the cold weather gets worse, there, Lord, as, as people are dying from cold, Lord, we pray that there'll be a solution. Lord, we pray for the the more moderate voices within the Taliban government to be heard, that there would be a a rolling back of many of the restrictions. Lord, we pray for for China um as it's the lunar new year coming up, and so many people will be traveling and there's been a huge upsurge in in COVID there. And Lord, we know that you grieve over every death. so we pray for some kind of breakthrough there in terms of controlling that. Thank you Lord Lord we thank you for um, we thank you for the police outside this morning and the concern that the authorities have here for our safety in the midst of all kinds of other stuff that's going on around the world. So we pray your blessing upon those guys out on the street, Lord, as they keep an eye on our our safety this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: If anyone would like to be prayed for, as we do our closing songs, there'll be um, two people here in front, Daniel and Jim, and then in the back we have Mark and Dindy. So if you have any prayer requests or anything deep on your heart, please feel free to come to them and ask for a prayer. Thank you. I call you
1: answered To my rescue And I
0: Wanna be where
1: You are